Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come and we praise you. We praise you for your daily mercies, your daily grace. We thank you that we can come and gather here together this morning to praise you, to lift up our voices and just lift up Christ as our sole hope, our sole joy, our sole life. And not in the past, but in the present and in the future and into all of eternity. He is our life and so we come and we look to him And we thank you for your son this morning. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. What weight of sin and how many ways all of us fail and we falter, we stumble and we sin again and again and again. And how utterly hopeless we would be if this was up to us. But thank you for the forgiveness that is in Christ, in Christ alone, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are all forgiven through him. And we rejoice in your son this morning. We live by faith. And we're not saved by works, but by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so we thank you this morning as we come. And we thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for Haven. Thank you that you have brought all of us together as this local body of believers. All of us different and different personalities and different backgrounds and different things going on in our lives and and all these things, but we just thank you that you have brought us together and that is your doing. Thank you for the love of these people here, for your word and our love for your word that you have produced in us. And we pray, Father, this morning that you would help us, that the gospel would be held high, even if it has It has already been held high before us. May we continue to rejoice in it, continue to glory in it, and not just kind of in this facade sort of way, and not at all in a facade sort of way, but that we would, that the gospel would be held high in our hearts, it would be held high in our words, held high in our motivations. May you produce in us authentic. Christianity, not this false, powerless sort of godliness that is really no godliness at all, but instead we would walk in faith, true, real faith, being doers of the word and not merely merely hearers of your word this morning. So help us, Lord, grow our faith, the righteous shall walk by his faith, and so may we do that. We trust your word. May we trust it all the more as we turn to it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. 
We'll be in John chapter 16, continuing this chapter and ending this chapter this morning. And so John 16, verses 16 through 33. So in several months, we'll be coming upon the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. You know, it's hard to think that it's already been 20 years since all that madness happened. You know, and as, as I think about that, that time, you know, I remember a lot of things, a number of things about that day, you know, and even a number of things, you know, about that, the weeks that kind of followed that, that day, as I'm sure many of you do as well. You have your own stories that you could tell and the things you were feeling and the things that you did and, you know, all these things that were going through your mind. But I know one thing um, that comes to my mind, particularly as I think back, you know, during that time is, is actually a song. And it's not even a Christian song um, that I'm thinking of. But this song, they, they would often play as, you know, they, they showed footage from 9-11 and, and all that transpired there. And basically this song, it looked out over the world and kind of brokenness. You know, they, they, they didn't say it exactly like that, but that's what they were doing. They were looking out over the, the broken world that we're living in and they just kind of said in the chorus, I am overcome. I am overcome. And that's what we all were. Right? We were all overcome witnessing these things. And our hearts were indeed broken. Well, in our broken world, the chorus could well be that. Year after year, over the myriad of time in history as it's progressed again and again in the midst of all the things that have happened in our world like time and time again that could well be the course of the years. I am overcome. As we drink it all in, as we drink in sorrow after sorrow, you know, trouble after trouble, trouble trial after trial, challenge after challenge, facing the sinfulness, the brokenness of our world. And so we look out, and yes, we say it, it most certainly is broken. It's a sin-cursed world, and we are indeed sin-separated from God. But that's not the end of the story. Amen. That's not where we just kind of have a period at the end. I am overcome, period. Instead, we see that there is hope. And the hope, it is, it is not, you know, as we kind of, even before we go and start reading our passage this morning, just to be totally honest with ourselves, you know, it's not in masking our fallenness. As we so often so well do, the hope is not in kind of hiding away, hiding it away like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, kind of hiding behind the bush kind of thing. We can do that so well in our churches, in our families, and everywhere. It's not hope in that. 
And the hope is not found in that. It's in looking full in the face of our sin, our fallenness, our brokenness, and seeing our need is Christ. Seeing our need is for Him who overcome the world, Jesus Christ. And so it is to Him that we will see this morning as we turn to the Gospel of John, Him who overcomes the world. And so let's read here then, beginning in verse 16 till the end of the chapter. May God bless His Spirit-inspired Word. So Jesus continues. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. And so they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a man, a woman, not a man, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you, Have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. 
in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Here, throughout Jesus' farewell discourse, and this is no surprise to you, but we have seen it again and again, how Jesus is, is saying how he's going away. And you might even say, as we have seen and, and kind of walked through this time as he's talked to the disciples, that this is really kind of the dominant idea or at least the dominant context. He's continually kind of pressing that point forward as they continually talk about all these different things, loving one another, the vine and the branches, hate for hatred from the world, and so on, the Spirit coming. I am going away, he tells them again and again. Now, in hearing all that, Jesus, he's not just kind of being repetitious. He wants his disciples to be ready He wants them, when all this happens, that they will remember what he had told them. And all these things that he's telling them here now. And so from multiple angles, we have seen that Jesus, he has talked about this. Yet even so, even here, which may not be all that surprising based on what we've seen so far is what we see is confusion over his words once again. And so the disciples, they just, they just aren't getting it. And so Jesus, he tells them in verse 16, you know, in a little while, they're not going to see him, but then they will. And so if you miss kind of their confusion here, you're like, what do you mean? I, I don't quite remember them being really confused here. Well, It can't be more evident than when they say in verse 18, we do not know what he is talking about. (laughs) You know, you can't be more plain than that. Like, what is he trying to tell us? I don't know. Do you know? You know how you kind of can do that? Well, they do not know. And so they don't know. They don't know what they don't know, you know? Now, before we all kind of give the disciples a hard time here, just consider what it would have been like for them. What it would have been like kind of if you were in their sandals, per se. So none of the things that we're just so familiar with had happened yet. Or at least many of us, if you, especially if you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with it. But even if you, you haven't grown up in the church, you're somewhat familiar with these things. You know, they weren't, they weren't living in a culture that was shaped by Christianity with every turn, even though our culture is moving away from Christianity, even now the air it breathes is still Christian air. Like, they're borrowing from the Christian worldview, even now, without knowing it. Well, they, they hadn't grown up with ready access to Genesis, to Revelation. They didn't have any of that. And if you're, if you're here and you're someone who has grown up in church, well, you know, they wouldn't have grown up hearing about salvation and salvation through Christ and Christ alone. None of that had happened yet, if you can imagine it, which we hardly can. I mean, 2,000 years shaped by Christianity. 
And maybe just to put this a bit in perspective. So even if, let's say, someone came to us, you know, the week before September 11th, 2001, and they, they told you, you know, that all that was going to happen, you know, the World Trade Center is going to be hit by two planes and those buildings will collapse. I mean, right now, yeah, sure, you might feel confident that you'd be like, well, maybe I'd be like, that could happen. Well, a lot has happened that would make you think that now, right? I don't think we would say, oh, yeah. We'd probably say, I think you're kind of like off the deep end, maybe a little crazy here, you know. I don't think it would be so easily believed by us. I think we just see in that that the future is a tricky thing. I mean, you look out over the future, there's a lot of things. If you would tell people in the past what we're doing today, they'd be like, what in the world are you talking about? You know, wearing masks, germs, COVID? I mean, what is all that? Technology? I mean, how do you explain that to them? So I think we can perhaps come with a little bit more sympathy to the disciples Here, I mean, the suffering servant, yes, was foretold in Isaiah 53. But there's no one here on the scene kind of thinking, oh yeah, that's what's going to happen. At least not in that way they didn't think this is what the Messiah and what he would be like. And so we can sympathize with them here. And so what does Jesus then mean here by verse 16? So they're all confused, but we have hindsight, or at least we we now know what all these things mean. Well, he is here talking about his death and the world's transient rejoicing. So in a little while, when Jesus dies and is buried, they won't see him. Kind of plain, right? You get that? (laughs) That's, that's evident enough. So it's, it's at this, at his death, then that the world, they will do what? Rejoice! That's what they're going to do. So why the disciples, they are just going to be overcome. They're going to be weeping. They're going to be sorrowful. They're going to be lamenting. What will the world be doing? Yeah. They're going to be throwing a party. You know, joy to the world. The Lord is dead. That's what they'll be singing. Rejoicing over his death. As the blows end and the nails have pierced his skin and the blood runs down the cross, the world, it would not weep at that. It would smile. We lift our hands this morning where they would lift their hands also. Yet that smile, it will not endure. It is a transient, brief rejoicing. And that is the way of worldly rejoicing. It has an end to it. It will not last and immediately here in the context... It will not last because Christ, he would not remain 
dead. He would not remain buried in the grave, would he? He wouldn't remain beaten. He would rise from the dead victorious. Temporary, transient rejoicing. And so so we see then the second part to Jesus' words here. Verses 21 and 22, his resurrection and our sure joy. So in a little while they won't see him. But yes, in a little while they will see him also. So their sorrow will be great. Even as Jesus, he gives this illustration here of a woman in labor. You know, when that, when that labor comes, not that I know that from personal experience. You know, many of you women do know this from personal experience. It comes this time of sorrow at the hour of pain that is coming. But thereafter, joy. This little one now in your arms. And so also when Christ rises, joy abounds. Then as it says there in verse 22, their hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you, he says. Why? Why will no one take away your joy? Because it's finished. Because what Jesus offers, it is no transient joy. This joy is a joy bound to the resurrected Christ, who is even now seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Time, it may sap your body of its former health and vigor, and even, I guarantee, if you live into old age, it will do just that. The way to the world's opposition It may come and be great and hard. And death itself may come and say, it is time. Yet our answer will ever be, no one will take this joy from me. This is no opium for the people, as Karl Marx liked to say of religion. This here is real joy. And it's for you, and it's for me, in Christ, forever. No one's going to take it from you. Now, in view of all that, as we see that and hear all that, what Jesus says next here, it may seem kind of like, well, how does he, why does he turn that direction, you know? So following his resurrection, following seeing him again, we see this point that that Jesus is the basis of our prayers. Verses 23 through 24, and you're probably like, okay, yeah, joy and then prayer? You know, finished work of Christ, prayer? You know, I didn't see that one coming. You know, I didn't kind of think we were going to talk about prayer next. Well, we are. (laughs) That's where he goes right after this. So how does this relate to all that Jesus has been saying here up to this point? They have been asking Jesus a great deal. They've been directly directly interacting with Jesus one-on-one, you know, asking him 
all their questions. But after his resurrection, all the cogs will begin to fall in place. Kind of like us seeing this now, like, oh yeah, why didn't they see that? Well, there's reason they didn't understand that now, but we see it. It's clear, right? Just like Jesus said it would be. So then they will know. And thus, they won't need to ask him. And more than that, they will pray to the Father in Jesus' name, and he will answer. He is the basis of their prayers. He is the basis of our, prayer, of our prayers to God the Father. It is his finished work that is the basis of our confidence in praying to him. As Hebrew says, right? It's approaching the grace, the throne of grace with confidence in our time of need. Well, that's why. It's because of him. Because of Christ. You see, it just right relates to it all. Now, if there's any question here, just to be clear, this is still not talking kind of about a blank check kind of prayer. You know, when it when he says there, you know, whatever you ask the Father in my name, verse 23. He's not just kind of saying like, okay, so, so Jesus, you're saying that if I pray to God, God give me a million dollars, like the next day I'm going to have like a million dollars in my bank account. That's great. You know, that, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you know, if you pray, you know, God, you know, give me Superman's powers. And that tomorrow, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to be Superman. You're going to have a cape. You're going to fly around. Well, that's, that's not what he is saying here. It's not like whatever, you know, blank check kind of thing. There is a context here to his words. The context is this gospel. The context is the Bible. The context is this Jesus, this one triune God with his holy, righteous, perfect, and uncompromising character. And so we remember to whom we are praying to. We remember we are praying in Jesus' name before God the Father who has revealed himself in specific Genesis to Revelation sort of ways. So in other words, we have a context for our asking. But the asking here, it does come with a surety. We know God on the basis of Jesus and in asking and praying and God answering, he answers that our joy may be full. Verse 24. And in seeing that, See that Jesus, he desires your joy. He wants you to be joyful. I mean, have you ever, as you think about the Christian life, have you ever thought of it that way? Like, he wants me to be joyful, like go around glad? I think if you look at some Christians, maybe not, you know, like, I don't know if that's really what Christianity is about, you know. Joy, that's the furthest thing from the mind, perhaps, of some People and churches, is this all, you know, no, it's all serious. Where's the joy, you know? 
it's, it's, it's evident here that he desires our joy. And in praying in Christ's name, as his beloved child, God wants to give you that joy. Amen. And so we must simply pray. And so consider here then the joy available to you. So from multiple angles, God is saying, see what joy there is for you in Christ. It's not like this, you know, terrible, like, woe is me kind of picture of the Christian life. That's not what we see. You want more evidence of that? Look at Paul in Philippians. I mean, he's the most joyful guy around, you know, and he's in prison. He calls us to this. We're not, we're not drawing here from kind of a pothole pond, you know, the kind that you drive down the road and you see a pothole there and there's water in it after rain. Oh, that's the kind of joy. It's going to eventually run out. It's kind of all dirty and nasty and mixed with all this nasty stuff. Well, that's not, that's not the kind of joy that God offers us. Instead, when we are praying, when we're seeking God, we're drawing from a boundless ocean of joy. Amen. And how close is it? Well, it's as close as our knees. It's as close as prayer. You know, and if you're, I wonder, you know, if you, if you were making a list of what, you know, how, how to gain joy or ways to gain joy, I wonder what would be on your list. Now, you've heard this sermon so far, but let's say you hadn't. You know, you were at home, you're not sitting in Sunday school, you're not getting ready like Jesus, you know, and just answer that question like everybody wants you to say. You're sitting at home, and you answer, here are the ways that you're going to gain joy. What would be on your list? You know, do these things, you'll gain joy. Maybe exercise, you know. Eat right, you know, eat, eat some good food, you know, take a walk, you know, eat a piece of cheesecake like we did many times after Megan's birthday. And so we enjoyed through the fullest. Our kids came asking, what happened to all the cheesecake? <laughs> Maybe that would be on the list. So what would be on your list there, and I just, I wonder, I don't know how many of us would put prayer there, right? Would prayer be on your top ten? Well, our joy is bound to prayer because prayer is bound to God the Father through Christ by the Spirit. Does, does one preacher said, you know, a prayerless Christian is like a bus driver trying to push this bus out of a rut by himself. They're just doing it i got to get it up there. i got to get through this Christian life. Because, it goes on, because he doesn't know Clark Kent is on the bus. There's this joy God just wants to fill your life with in Christ. We're here, sitting here trying to do it all ourselves, you know, and, and God's like, I can take care of this for you, you know, with all this stuff, and not just like circumstantially, but in your heart. I can deal with this stuff. Just seek my face. Just seek me. Now, in, in saying all that, just hear me here. This isn't magic either. 
It's not like you pray and then boom, joy, you know. You're just like, ah, oh, I prayed, you know, and you come out like smile on your face, good, you know. That's not what this is talking about either. It's, it's drawing from the resources of Christ for your life. You need him, and so you pray, and so yes, you cry out, and it may be with tears, maybe with brokenness, you may be praying to him and lamenting even before him, you may be weeping in prayer before him, you seek his face, I need you, God, and it can be that kind of prayer, and then he comes and brings you joy in it, sorrowful yet rejoicing. And so all of this comes for a circle then. Even as we've seen in John already. So John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So long as we are looking at the transient things for our joy, things that will not last for our joy, we'll find that our joy is also transient. It just kind of comes and goes. But God is calling us to that greater joy that isn't in transient kind of things, it's in him, the boundless ocean of joy. Abide in him is what he's calling you to. And so we see here then that it's well established, right? That the the disciples are confused. (laughs) You got that one? But with verses 25 to 33, we find hope or perhaps clarity in the midst of the confusion or do we so in other words do the disciples kind of finally understand here do they finally get Jesus now before I answer that or before we answer that Jesus he begins to clarify that it will all be soon made clear so verse 25 through 28 so so far he has spoken to them in these kind of figures of speech, and it's not just like this mysterious thing. It's, it's like I talked about, like future stuff, like we don't know quite how that's going to look. But when he is resurrected and the Spirit is given, he will tell them plainly about the Father, and they will understand. Verse 25. So in that day, in the days after, there will be a lot more clarity. Right? Bible? <laughs> A lot more clarity to come. Then Jesus will not ask the Father for them. They will pray in Jesus' name to themselves. Verse 26. Why? Because they know the Father themselves. This is, this is true of us as well now. If you know Jesus, when you pray, you pray directly to God the Father through Christ. Amen. What a privilege! Amazing. We aren't in need of priests. Nor do we need to pray to dead saints for God to hear us. 
we pray to the Father through Christ. What an opportunity. What a privilege to go and pray, saints. And so to all this, though, the disciples, they respond. And we see they still don't get it. But they do or they, they do believe, or they believe. So verses 29 to 32. Now, in saying that, you may be like, oh, what do you mean? Like, how do you, where do you see that? Or how do you see that in this passage? Why do you say that? Well, they're acting like they finally kind of understand Jesus, but they still don't know what he means. Well, how do I know that? Well, Jesus just told us that, right? Verse 25, the hour is coming. It's not come yet. Well, they will be told plainly about the Father, verse 25. But that's not here yet. This is like when, you know, you're talking to a doctor and they, they use all these kind of a doctor or, you know, professor or someone really smart, you know, and intelligent. And they use all these kind of academic or intelligent specialized terms. And your answer is like, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. That's, that's great. I know exactly what you mean. And that is profound, too even though you have no idea what they're talking about. Well, I think this is basically what the disciples are doing here. They're like, ah, oh, yeah, we got gotcha. you. Know? And they don't got him. They don't really get him. However, they still do have this kernel of faith. It's not a big amount of faith. It's, it's, it's a weak amount of faith here, and I'm going to show you that too. But they're, they're leaning on Jesus, and they're not leaning away from Jesus as they're kind of saying this. You know, like, we don't quite know, but we're kind of leaning on you, and we don't really know everything, what you're saying, but we believe. And, and so they, believe, they do believe, as we see there in verse 30, they say, Now we know that you know all things and do not know, need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now, this is where we see that Jesus knows better. He knows their heart. It's not like they're hiding anything from him. You know, he knows what they believe and they don't believe. And he sees that they do believe, but their faith is a feeble faith. It is a weak faith. So it is that Jesus, he asked them this question, do you believe? And, and I don't think he's asking it like this. So he's not saying, do you believe? Like, woohoo, you finally believe. You know, he's not asking it like that. It's more like, do you believe? Why do I say it that way? Or why do I think it's like that? Well, because what he says next, what are they going to do? Are they going to be right there? Kind of like, we're going right with you, Jesus, to the cross. Nope. They all flee. They go to their homes. They will all leave Jesus. They scatter. They leave him. He's saying, yeah, you're making this bold claim, disciples. But you aren't quite getting it yet. You don't quite have that confident, bold faith that you think you have. You're going to scatter. But even so, here we see just how gracious our Lord is, that even, even with this kind of mild rebuke that he gives them here, 
how he is just guiding them, preparing them, and shepherding them through this. And this here, as he kind of ends this discourse, or at least his talking to them before his prayer in 17, he brings his whole discourse together to make this final point, where he essentially is saying here, bringing it all together, I will be glorified. I am the way. I am the vine. I am going away. The Spirit will come. They will hate you. They will throw you out. They will put you to death. You will scatter. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so he tells them and he tells us he has overcome the world. So at that, we just we marvel and we ask, how does he accomplish this overcoming of the world? What is it? It isn't through a myriad of armies like conquering the world in power. It's not with a fleet of battleships nor with a, a squadron of jets. It would be through his whole Self, it is through his body, it's through his very own blood, it's through his suffering, it's through his death, it's through his grief, it's through his burial, it's through his rising in victory. Even as we heard in the prelude, as the hymn goes, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever, he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. And so it is that we, we have eternal victory in Christ. Now, as we hear that, you know, we may, we may say it here, you know, we have victory in Christ. But I'll ask it, I'll, I'll ask us here, you know, just even as the tone of the introduction of this sermon, you know, just being honest with ourselves. Do we really live that way? Like we have victory in Christ? Is that the way our families and homes and churches look like? Is that, is that the way we're living? You know? I remember a professor of mine, he, he told of uh, one of his professors and how this professor, he would go and he would counsel students <clears throat> and counsel students that were struggling with various things, you know, and he would, he would tell them, you know, there is hope in Christ. And, and that is right. That is 100% true. But he wouldn't say it like that. He would say it like this. There is hope in Christ. You know, <laughs> there is hope in Christ. You know, <laughs> That, like, no joy, like, I mean, where, where's, like, are you showing hope? there's hope in Christ? Like, you know, I mean, is that, like, a picture of what hope in Christ looks like, you know? Yeah, there's so much hope in Jesus, so much joy, you know? I mean, that's the way I think, though, that, that we kind of live our lives as Christians. We just kind of think, you know, like, joy is over here and Christianity is over here. We're just totally divided from one another. 
you know, victory and Jesus is over here, and then we don't really live that way as Christians. I think many of our lives look like what that sounds like. There's hope in Christ. We don't live like this message is really all that great or true or victorious. We don't live as though we know him who has overcome the world. Well, friends, as, as heat comes, as, as trials come, as sorrows come, as loss comes, as pain comes, because it will and it does, and all the time even, may this glorious, wonderful truth be before our eyes forever. Fix it before you. You know, this, this makes me think of someone, you know, George Mueller. And just his, his response, really. He was a preacher, a man who lived during the 1800s, great man of faith. In fact, that's one of the main things he's known for, is his incredible faith. Well, his wife of 29 years passed on. And what is his response? I think we learn from him what victory in Christ looks like. And so he goes to this prayer meeting after she passed on. And he stands up and he says this. Beloved brethren and sisters in Christ, I ask you to join with me in hearty praise and thanksgiving to my precious Lord for his loving kindness and having taken, taken my darling, beloved wife out of the pain and suffering which she has endured into his own presence. And as I rejoice in everything that is for her happiness, so now I rejoice as I realize how far happier she is in beholding her Lord, whom she loved so well than in any joy she has known or could know here. I ask you also to pray that the Lord would enable me now fellowship in her joy, that my bereaved heart may be occupied with her blessedness instead of my unspeakable loss. We see both there, right? He's grieving, but he is rejoicing. There is victory in Christ, and he is saying it to everyone. She is with the Lord, and I rejoice in that. And help me to rejoice in that, even as I grieve and my heart is broken. I think that's victory in Christ looks like in our life. We can have that. Both pictures. No conflict. So are you living according to the reality of this victory that we indeed do have in Christ? Let me then urge us to let, let us all live according to him who has indeed overcome the world with all of its woes all of its sorrows and sadnesses. Let us rejoice in the victory that we have in Christ. We may well say and sing that chorus again, I am overcome. In fact, I would imagine, I can guarantee you're going to sing that chorus again in this broken world. We may well lament, but in the face of that brokenness, let us rejoice and him who has overcome the world. Let's pray.
Father, we come and we do rejoice. We pray, we ask, we trust your word that you will indeed give us this joy and indeed we have this joy. No one will take it from us. We have a great Lord, a great rock, and a great redeemer. And it's no opium. He lives. We know he lives. And we now live for him. And we live in light of this victory we have in Christ. And so may you work in our hearts, Lord, that this Christianity we boldly proclaim would not be a divided Christianity, a fake Christianity, but a whole life Christianity. We've taken our masks off this morning. May we also take them off in our lives spiritually, in our homes, in our lives, our families, in our churches. May we live for Christ as we weep. May we live for Christ as we rejoice. May we trust in him who truly overcomes the world. And we pray if there's anyone here or online who doesn't know you this morning, may they see that Jesus is indeed the Savior who came to save them. May they believe in the one who came and died, was buried and rose again, that all their sins would be forgiven through faith in him. So may they respond this morning and may we all respond this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.